You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Alleged Russian influence operations have been described by U.S. intelligence services. Ghostwriter targets the Baltic region with anti-NATO false narratives. Chinese intelligence is said to have compromised Vatican networks. Loss of customer PII seems the costliest kind of data breach. VPN bugs represent a risk to OT networks. Big tech comes to Capitol Hill virtually. Michigan's online bar exam's been knocked offline briefly by a cyber attack. Joe Kerrigan on password stealers targeting gaming. Our guests are Troy Smith and Mike Coons from Raytheon on defending communications operations across cloud platforms. And a superseding indictment for two ex-Twitterati charged with snooping for Saudi Arabia. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, July 29th, 2020. Several interrelated Russian disinformation operations are apparently in progress. Declassified U.S. intelligence describes the GRU's and SVR's campaigns to spread disinformation about the COVID-19 pandemic, the New York Times reports. The influence operations running from May through this month have been staged for the most part through two news services, InfoRoss and One World Press. 150 articles on the pandemic have been staged over that period. According to the AP, two GRU veterans have been identified with the effort. Apparently, the GRU's cousins in the SVR aren't on the sidelines either. Its connections with the Strategic Culture Foundation are currently being looked at by the FBI. Info Ross and One World's content is aimed at Western and, in particular, U.S. audiences, The pieces are written in idiomatic English and are designed to be run through and amplified by other sites and outlets. The themes of the pieces are familiar. Russia is helping other countries, including the U.S., with medical aid during the pandemic. COVID-19 may have been a U.S. biowar operation that ran away from its masters. This one originated with China's intelligence services. American blue cities have descended into chaos. People are worried about Hunter Biden's sweetheart deal with a Ukrainian energy company. This one's a useful twofer, a bad look for America and a bad look for Ukraine, neither of which countries have exactly been flavor of the month in Moscow for some time. And so on. As usual, the stories surround the lies with what in this case amounts to a thin bodyguard of truth. Social media platforms, especially Facebook, have been labeling obvious state-run news outlets like RT, that is Russia Today, and Sputnik as such. But it's tougher to filter stories fed through third parties, which is what InfoRoss and OneWorld do. The AP likens it to money laundering, only with information instead of cash. Content is cycled through other news sources to conceal their origin, 
and enhance the legitimacy of the information. The strategy takes advantage of the long-standing but surprisingly seldom-remarked derivative nature of much news reporting. One World takes exception to those who've characterized it as a Russian influence tool. They are, they say on their website, a global think tank, and their response to the stories in AP and the New York Times runs under the headline, One World's Response to Media Defamation, Sharing One's Opinion Doesn't Make Them a GRU Agent adding emphasis to the headline with an exclamation point. Separately, FireEye's Mandiant Unit outlines what it calls the Ghostwriter Campaign intended to influence audiences in Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland against NATO. Ghostwriter is perhaps more obviously fraudulent than the efforts mounted through One World. Mandiant's report says it, quote, appears to have leveraged website compromises or spoofed email accounts to disseminate fabricated content, including falsified news articles, quotes, correspondence, and other documents designed to appear as coming from military officials and political figures in the target countries, end quote. Mandiant believes it's identified at least 14 inauthentic persona through which Ghostwriter distributes its content. There is, Mandiant says, no modal Ghostwriter operation, by which they mean that it's opportunistic and willing to run with whatever seems to work. But a ghostwriter campaign tends to follow a general outline. It begins by formulating a false narrative supported by fabricated source documentation like phony quotations, doctored images, and bogus official documents. The second phase is dissemination, which places stories in compromised legitimate news sites, op-eds, blog posts, and direct email campaigns. Chinese intelligence services are said to have penetrated the Vatican's networks in advance of diplomatic talks with the Holy See. Recorded Future provides details of Beijing's Red Delta threat group and its operations against the diocese of Hong Kong and the Vatican itself. The campaign's goals are thought to be the extension of Communist Party influence over the persecuted underground church and collection against the Hong Kong diocese's potential connection with pro-democracy movements in the formerly autonomous city. IBM looks at the cost of a data breach and finds that, on average, breaches wind up costing organizations $3.86 million. Compromised employee accounts are the most common cause. The study looked at the experience of some 500 organizations located around the world, and it found that 80% of these incidents studied resulted in exposure of customers' personally identifiable information. And of all types of information lost in incidents, customer PII was hands down the most expensive to the organizations that suffered the breach. Vulnerabilities in industrial virtual private networks are believed to be placing critical infrastructure at risk. Clarity yesterday published an assessment in which it associated the pandemic-driven increase in remote work with a heightened risk of VPN exploitation. Big Tech will testify before the U.S. House Judiciary Committee's Antitrust Subcommittee today. Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Apple's Tim Cook, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, and Google's Sundar Pichai appear today via socially distanced teleconference. The hearings are focused on alleged anti-competitive practices, but other matters are widely expected to come up, and the Wall Street Journal has a summary of what to expect. The hearings lack the usual drama of the rich and famous being grilled in a small, hot, crowded, traditionally sanctimonious hearing room, but that's the nature of congressional hearings during this time of the pandemic. 
Some of those who will appear, especially Zuckerberg and Cook, have been through the experience before, but it represents a first appearance for Mr. Bezos, who nonetheless earned a reputation for being able to stay on message when challenged. It's not just congressional hearings that have moved online, so have some bar examinations. Michigan is one of several states to have moved its bar exam online. That exam was briefly disrupted yesterday, Bloomberg Law reports, by a cyber attack on the ExamSoft portal used to administer it. ExamSoft says it was a sophisticated attack on the login process and that no data was lost. But the incident gave a lot of prospective Wolverine state lawyers a case of the yips. With the continued migration to the cloud, many organizations find themselves operating across multiple cloud services, often from a variety of vendors. Troy Smith and Mike Kuntz are with the cybersecurity team at Raytheon, and they join us with insights on the approach organizations should take to manage and defend communication operations across various cloud platforms. Troy Smith gets us started. You know, traditionally, the time it takes to deploy a physical network uh, can be uh, very long, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. The manual deployment of cloud-based networks can take anywhere from a few hours to multiple days. And in both of those, there's a potential for human error uh, in the process. So that kind of addresses time and resources. The process of building virtual clouds uh, was very expensive, and, and fixed facilities were easy to target by adversaries. So there is a cost piece in there uh, as you frame out this problem. As cloud infrastructure technology has matured over the years, millions of virtual machines have been created, accessed, and destroyed worldwide. Uh, and tens of thousands of virtual cloud networks are built and destroyed daily. And the reason for that is most of them lack the critical security protocols. Can you give me some insights on what happens in terms of interoperability between different cloud providers? I mean, is that is that an area where uh, people have specific security vulnerabilities when they're trying to you know, sort of sling data back and forth in between different providers? Naturally, yeah, uh, you're right. That's Mike Koontz. If you're able to deploy within a certain cloud, a specific one, and stay uh, within a local region, you do have more options uh, within a lot of the clouds to do a lot of different private things uh, within the cloud's actual backbone, uh, the CSP's actual backbone. So, you know, every time you egress out of one of the services and have to transit and then move into another one, of course, you've got to, you know, take care with that. You know, and that's one of the elements that, you know, we, we kind of handle pretty well with the tool. It's uh, got pre-designed different packages um, out there already integrated in. Uh, maybe you want to stand up VPNs. Maybe you want to do different types of things. Um, we've already got a lot of that figured out. Um, so you are right there. Uh, if you're able to stay within one set CSP and specifically within a region, uh, a lot of times you have options to have your traffic not even exit the infrastructure of that CSP. Do, do you find there, there's sort of a, a false sense of security for people who are getting started with these sorts of things that because it is so much uh, faster and, and in some ways easier to set up that, um, you know, they, they don't often or they don't always realize uh, the security implications of, of what they're setting out to do? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, because, as you know, a lot of times and most of the time, uh, a good adversary 
uh, is going to do his bad deeds in a way that you're not able to readily recognize it right away. Yeah, so a lot of times people get these things out there, they get the everything deployed, it's up and running, they can go out and use their services, their user base is using their services, everything seems happy and fine. And then you find out way after the fact, when it's already very late, yeah, you've got some problems. Uh, so yeah, that's a very common issue for sure. Our thanks to Troy Smith and Mike Coons from Raytheon for joining us. And finally, you may have seen reports that two former Twitter employees under indictment won a legal victory over U.S. federal prosecutors by having charges dismissed. Not so. The Justice Department hasn't withdrawn charges against the former Twitter staffers Ahmad Abuamo and Ali Alzabara. Instead, CyberScoop reports it's issued a superseding indictment against them, charging them with acting as an agent of a foreign government without notice to the Attorney General, conspiracy to commit wire fraud and honest services fraud, wire fraud and honest services fraud. Conspiracy is its own distinct crime, so that's not a typo. Money laundering, destruction, alteration, or falsification of documents relevant to a federal investigation, and aiding and abetting. The defendants are alleged to have done these things on behalf of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and they're alleged to have snooped on a former associate of murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Hey. 
And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He is from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, We have been tracking this uh, meow attack, as it's being called, and I wanted to get your take on it. First, uh, can you start off, just give us a, a brief description of what's going on here. So what's happened is, as of this recording, they have uh, researchers have identified over eighteen hundred databases, uh, cloud databases. These are uh, databases like Elasticsearch and MongoDB, uh, and these are open and accessible on the internet. And somebody is going around finding them and wiping them out, taking all the data and destroying it. Hmm. They're not leaving a ransom note. They're not doing anything other than just taking the database down. Uh, actually, they're not even taking it down. They're just destroying the data that's in the database. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Emptying it or, yeah. Right. No more database. <laughs> no more database, right? <laughs> no more Everything data, Everything you had is gone. Yeah, no more data. Yeah. And it's permanent, apparently. Hmm. And so what's the speculation here? What, what do we think's going on? Well, my speculation, and and this is only my speculation, is that uh, this is somebody who believes that they are doing something uh, right and justified. Hmm. Um, there are a couple of indicators of this. One, this has been a, lo- a problem for a long time with these data breaches happening because people are putting these databases out on the internet with no security on them, right? Which is Which is a bad thing to do. You shouldn't do mm-hmm. that. Uh, mm-hmm. There may be use cases, however, where that's a good thing to do. You may want to give access to uh, a certain data set with, without requiring authentication to it. I, there are tons of research cases where I, would, where I can see that being beneficial. Um, and if this attack finds those, it can destroy valuable data that is supposed to be free and available, right? Right. Um, but when you think about databases like uh, Ars Technica talks about a UFO VPN database that was destroyed that had all kinds of details. The, there had been a uh, disclosure about it that had account passwords in plain text, VPN sessions and secret tokens, all of these things in that in that database that were destroyed. It's probably too late, but it actually does those users some good, you know, in, in, in taking their data and removing it from them, from, hmm. from UFO. Uh, I'm not saying this is the right thing to do. I'm not saying this is the way you go about fixing this problem. Uh, but I think what what we're looking at here is someone who kind of views themselves as uh, you know as a cape crusader, trying to help people out. Vigilante justice, <laughs> exactly. Vigilante <laughs> justice. Uh, you know, you have your data out on the internet. Not anymore. Not as not if I have anything to say about it. Hmm. So, w- what do you suppose the end game is on this? Is this hopefully gets the word out to folks who are running these databases that? Uh, they need to secure them or they will have issues here? Yeah, that's kind of the the upside. I mean, I don't want to say that this is going to have an upside because this activity is malicious and, and illegal, certainly. But yeah. if you don't have any risk of having your data destroyed when you put it out there like this, then you're more likely to do it. Now there's a risk that your data will be destroyed. So this does put an economic force into play for better security. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. In fact, I don't. I don't agree with the way this is being done, but the economic force is a good thing. Hmm. Interesting. Well, as we're recording this, uh, they've hit over 1,800 unsecured databases, uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if they continue along or if uh, folks figure out ways to maybe uh, tamp them down. Oh, my money is on they'll continue. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right, where absolutely. my money is. 
Yeah, yeah. Always the optimist, Joe. Always yeah, the optimist. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.